No question. But I have to make the LeBron argument. Well, I, I, I would say this, and maybe this kills the argument, but there's no question LeBron James is the better athlete. But okay. who do you want on your team? Michael Jordan. I also think that while Jordan may have had more of the killer instinct, LeBron is just as effective, even without that killer instinct to score, in controlling a, an a playoff game, right? I think he's the better basketball player, without wow. a doubt. Wow. Without a doubt. He's a more well-rounded ball player. You know, um, they both killer defense. Now, now I got to flip over to Jordan. Jordan had a year where, man, he put up that 8.7 assists a game, and he was grabbing rebounds, and he did it. Oh, it was scored like 32. Yeah, 32. Well, like, 32 a game. Yeah. And that's why I would take Jordan, because I think... I, I think it's very close. I think at the end of the day, LeBron is a little bit better at basketball. He's certainly a bigger guy. Yeah, um, that that I will agree. But, but like physically, he is just more imposing. But he's got that. He's got that. That sort of, you know, he's he he's been heralded as the best basketball player since he was a kid. And yeah. So he's got this little bratishness in him that yeah. I think someone like Jordan would just. Eat alive. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The fact is, like, when you get down to, like, the analytics, the, like, eye test, the level of competition, like, Jordan's just better. I know. You know? It just, you just, you just, you know. Welcome, everybody. We're going to do a, a text of the matter reader today. So... Normally we like to take uh, specific texts, break it down for you, um, talk about it you know, with a fine-tooth comb and really talk about what you know, this thinker or this specific book is offering. Um, but as we approach Kant's uh, dialectical chapter, um, we thought it was maybe necessary to do just an episode on dialectic, what it is, where it comes from, why everyone is always talking about it, but never seems to know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> the way they, t especially for me, like I'm of an art historical background, so it's always, you know, the dialectics of, you know, yeah. sculpture, and you're like, which can be done, but is not what is being done. You look, both of us having gone to art school, to the same art school, can attest that there are 10 million artist statements use the word dialectical among I cannot roll other, my eyes hard enough <laughs> among a million other words and there never seems to be a sense of exactly what it is that they mean and I think that's primarily because one the contemporary books that use dialectics are complex but also that the dialectic is a heterogeneous thing right that it, it, it hasn't always been one thing, that it has developed over time and has occurred in many different contexts. Yeah, and so for all of you out there, uh, spoiler alert, um, you will be a little disappointed because never at any point in this whole uh, episode are we really going to give you this beautifully concise, well-packaged definition of dialectics because a fundamental part of the dialectical process is this sort of element of synthesizing discoveries you've made or, or contradictions you've identified, which then changes the concepts which you were originally trying to define or talk about 
And so really one of the most fundamental basic parts of the dialectic is that it, it, it is always moving, right? It's yeah. never something that you can pin down and say, here it is. Because as part of the dialectical process, as we'll see, as soon as you do that, you've created a new dialectic that you're now working through. Absolutely. Um, and, and I would say, in addition to that, that the dialectic, even in its earliest form, during this period that um, Jasper's called the Axial Age, which was 800 BCE to 300 BCE, that you see popping up in places with no relation to each other intellectually, uh, similar traditions of dealing with contradiction, with ambivalence, with change, with flux, with cycles, right? That we can identify continuous and discontinuous forms of thought that can all be called dialectical. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And that, and that a fundamental part of this process is sort of what we're doing, right? There, even when it's a single person writing a, a monograph or a treatise or something, that there is this element of dialogue, right? And you see, you hear it in the word dialectic dialogue, but that there's this, this openness towards refining an idea yes. and accepting critiques of an idea in order to refine that thought more and better and more succinctly, more concisely, more accurately. Um, which is probably, uh, you know, we might as well just start at the beginning then in that sense. Yeah, because um, I think dialogue is the best place to start. It is, and it's obviously where all, whether it's philosophic or theological or even scientific, where all of this starts. It starts with people talking about phenomena that they are experiencing that uh, are not so concretely... Um, Defined? Yeah, or dealt with even, yeah. right? Um, and so I, I did want to start this, though, with um, a kind of thought that I want everyone to keep in mind as we talk about what dialectics are, where they came from, how they've, how they've evolved, because it's something that I think if you, if you hold with you as we go through this, will make those sort of more challenging parts uh, less challenging. And um, so this is uh, from a book Adorno wrote. It's, he didn't write it, actually. It's just a collection of lectures he gave on. It's like an introduction to dialectics. But I thought this was a great way of sort of um, placing the dialectics in a place that is consistent throughout history. And he says, you know, because the, the thing when people talk about dialectics is always this contradiction. And it's like, well, what is this contradiction? Where does it live? Where, where is it coming from? And... Uh, what Adorno says is that the true contradiction of the dialectic is that between the method, methodolo methodology of thought, right, so the dialectic itself, and the thing itself it seeks to represent. And so what you'll find here and what dialectics, even in this very early stage that we're about to go into, is always dealing with is how the truth is kind of this slippery fish that in is particularly in using words, but in using thought to try and make sense of, is this ever elusive thing? And, and as soon as you think you've got it pinned down and figured out, 
something comes to the surface that makes you lose your grip all over again. Um, that's perfectly said. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why I love Adorno, is he, as verbose as he can be, sometimes he has these moments of, like, pristine clarity, yeah, where you're like, extreme lucidity. dude, it's that simple? Okay, oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, thanks for that riff on jazz, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> oh my god. Uh, at any rate, um, so, uh, Probably the best place to start. I mean, in the Western tradition, the dialectics is always rooted in the Greek historical tradition. Um, We will find that that is something shared throughout um, different Chinese thoughts as well as uh, Indian school philosophy. But um, considering we're doing this in lieu, you know, in preparation for this next episode on Kant, we'll start with the Greeks uh, as just a place to begin. Um, so as I said, dialectics, it really it has its root in dialogue. Yes. And very specifically, you've probably all heard of the Socratic dialogue, another thing I hear used in um, art school classes all the time, that this class is a Socratic dialogue. And, yeah, and it's maybe not. But, but, <laughs> but Socratic dialogues, I think even more from Socrates, who didn't leave anything written down, who was more of this thinker and somebody who was always asking questions, is really rooted in Plato. And in most of Plato's works, they are set up, even though he's writing them alone, even though he's not recording anything necessarily, most of his books are set as dialogues. So he'll have, you know, two to four interlocutors talking about a specific topic, trying to find whatever truth they can find from that. And this is probably the, the, like, earliest place that we can center dialectics in. Absolutely. Um, I think most specifically, you'll usually hear uh, Plato's work, Gorgias, which um, uh, Socrates is talking to Gorgias, who's a sophist, who's a school of Greek thought that was more interested in the rhetoric behind behind persuasion and and in basically winning an argument and. as a kind of kernel of the start of dialectics, what Plato does here is sort of identifies that in order for rhetoric to be an art, in order for dialogue or dialectics to be this thing, is that everyone kind of has to be on the same team, ready to set down beliefs that they have that may not be true or are proven true by dialogue um, in order to you know, find a more... Uh, concise and insightful form yeah. of, of whatever is being spoken about. That's, that's the practice of speaking through with an interlocutor, as you said, is a process of refinement, but only if you have the trust of your inter- interlocutor to, you know, stand on the same argumentative ground, to not use trickery, to not use, um, you know, uh, tricks of language, right. to to play with the way that we argue, you know? And, and yeah, that seems to be the foundation for it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, um, you know, and it, and it comes for this search where it's, you know, we are presented, in, especially in a philosophical um, setting, with these either contradictions or obstacles that we seem to can't get around. And so the idea is, by exposing these ideas, these concepts to critique, that perhaps that 
through their kind of imminent critique by critiquing something from what it is and what it is analytically giving us that we can find a breakthrough to these contradictions that we can that we can somehow find a path through right? yeah um and and it it goes from plato right mm -hmm. to aristotle and aristotle is is definitively where the word dialectic comes from and where this idea of a, a, a dialogic, right, a logic of dialogue is formalized in, in some way. And, uh, you know, there's a, a way that he distinguishes the way that we reason, right? Um, he talks about, you know, a demonstrative deduction and a dialectical deduction. So a demonstrative deduction would be one that would come from, like, a true primary source, right? So if we're talking about, at that time, what would have been, uh, f you know, a uh, f f philosophy of science of some sorts or philosophical sciences, that would be a true and primary source. Whereas in the case of the dialectic, it looks at what he called indoxin, or true and primary premises that everyone considers acceptable. So that's where the dialogue comes in. Two people are arguing something, someone really believes what they're saying, another person believes what they're saying, and they, that you use the dialectic then to go over these premises and in the form of a syllogism, which is something that we went over in Kant. Exactly, right? exactly. And, so, and we'll find this reflected in, in sort of all the forms of the, the dialectic that we'll go over is that, you know, that, that it does rest on usually a kind of logic or grammar, yes. right? Um, you know, in order to be clear and to identify truth, right, you need Certainly. some kind of uh, structure of logic to prove these things. Yeah, and, and so the syllogism, you know, we can break it down to a very simple form, which is like A, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? Like, that's often the way that it's thought of. It can become more complex, but, um, you know, that, that's the general form of it. Yeah. And so um, he, he said that the dialectic um, always began with a problem. Which he called, which was in in Greek, an aporia, which is another word that you might hear in philosophy, and he had various standards. Right, standard one was a conclusion follows necessarily from premises. Um, two was that a conclusion is not identical with any premise. Three was a conclusion follows the premises. Uh, premises. Four, that the predicate of the refutation, so the like subject and, and uh, verb uh, of the refutation's conclusion is the same as that of the thesis. Five, the predication of the refutation's conclusion signifies the same object as that of the thesis, so that everyone's agreeing what they're talking about, right? Seven, the premises of every deduction are predicative questions, so you're truly questioning something. You're not, uh, you know, just kind of like meandering in something that is known. Um, and then eight, the deductions are consistent if the expression is changed. So in here we see a kind of matter of language. And then from that he derived fallacy, 
And so whenever you hear someone talk about a logical fallacy, this is where they're derived from, right? Yeah. The logical fallacies all are born out of his description of dialectics. So he began with those that were um, in language. So we had uh, the homonym, right? Different use of the same word. So if you're both arguing over something and you're using two different meanings of the same word, then that's a fallacy, right? Amphiboly or ambiguity, which we got into with Kant. Combination, composition, division, accent, and form of expression. And then he had fallacies independent of language, such as accident, consequent, um, ignorance of rules of logic, not disproving what is actually asserted, begging the question, non-cause as cause, and many questions. Right. 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 So, like, you know, if you're over questioning uh, your interlocutor, right, you are kind of muddying the waters again, getting back to this kind of conjoined, caring sort of understanding of the process of trying to attain truth through this dialectical process. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen them, but um, someone years ago made a bunch of memes with. I think it's Ed Hockley's, but one of the NFL referees, uh, and each each one is uh, another one of the of Aristotle's uh, logical fallacies. Um, and the reason I love it is because that's exactly what Aristotle's trying to do here, right? Like, if our method for trying to establish and discover truth is a dialogue, is a kind of um, argument, we'll say. What he's trying to do is, like, just like in football, if there's a set of rules that all participants are following, then what you can do is eliminate this kind of sophistry, right? Because yeah. Aristotle in his day is still trying to get away from this um, persuasiveness of winning an argument out of charisma or out yeah. of trickery, right? Yeah. And that if we're trying to do true metaphysics or true philosophy, then what we're actually after is, is the truth is something that's objective. And so how do you how do you find these things, right? And so he he's kind of create this like structure, right? Like rules that you can be penalized for uh, in order to keep everybody kind of on the same team. And and you'll notice in like in the examples you gave where it's um you know, something as simple as like the refutation, the predicate of the refutation must have must be the thesis. Yeah. And that's a very long-winded way of saying that the refutation must still be referring to the original thesis that it's critiquing. And so exactly. that in a dialectic, and this is something you'll find in, I think, everything we're really going to talk about, is the critique is coming from the concept. Yeah. It is not coming from, without, from outside the concept. It is coming from something analytically found in whatever it is that you are debating. And this is really important and will become much more important later on as, as the idea progresses. But I think it's something that's fundamentally true to this the whole time and something that's very important in really understanding what the dialectical process is, is that you're using a concept and everything that it represents and can tell you about itself to refine that concept, to better understand your world. Yes. Stay on topic. 
use the same word that I'm using. Right, yeah. You know, uh, don't be divisive or argumentative, right? Don't uh, beg the question, as is a phrase that we still use today, right? These are just like simple rhetorical rules for kind of setting a groundwork for how two people are able to, or more than two people, a group of people, um, are able to refine a problem that is based on what we see out there. Claim that an apple is red, right? And you go from there. Well, if somebody is just going to say, the apple is blue, you know, and will not break from that, then, you know, beyond that just being a negation, right, if the premise is just totally absurd based on what the meaning of the word blue is, then you cannot have a conversation with them. And the dialectic ends. Right. There's no way to truth. I could probably have picked a better example than a color one, but... Which um, is very subjective, but, you know, even with, like, colorblindness or something, like, yeah. you know, red and blue are different different shades yes. right and, uh, and and but what i think you're saying is like we're not getting blue from red and so yes. you know someone holding fast hard and fast to this claim that the apple is blue is kind of introducing a concept that's not coming from the apple yeah or saying that a pear is an apple right, right? exactly so therefore the pear is green and the apple is green right that would be someone flouting the rules of the dialectic and, and so there's one last interesting part, I think, about Aristotle's dialectic, which is that he saw types of dialectics. And so he saw that there was a di didactic dialectic. There was just a plain old dialectic. Um, there was the parastic dialectic, which is like an examinational dialectic. And then his uh, final category was the heuristic dialectic, which is contentious, right? So he saw that as being something that we would use in a scientific debate. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. you, when, when something is being contended over, like, the reality of, say, nature, geography, or geology, rather, or something like that, that we would then use as particularly contentious form where the facts are, like, extremely solid and the people are kind, kind of have this um, knowledge behind them. Um, whereas uh, the parastic or the examinational is more speculative. Um, those that deduced from premises which are accepted by the answer and which anyone who claims to possess knowledge of the subject is bound to know. So that's like, you know, intellectuals within a field talking about dialectics or something. Right, yeah. Then when you make some type of argument based on those premises, well... If someone, everybody knows that Aristotle was the first person to use the term dialectic, then, you know, you can assume that within this group and you can use this sort of dialectic. And that's something that I, I that we will see is kind of unique in the, the dialectical tradition. Yeah, definitely. And one thing before we move on to uh, our next kind of segment here is that I think one thing that's unique specifically to the Greeks and has huge echoes as we like look at Western thought with dialectics is, you know, the reason you had Aristotle creating the system of rules and, and the reason you have Plato 
um, sort of embracing this practice of finding a way to um, eliminate contradiction, eliminate um, points of contention when you're dealing with a concept, is that both of them thought in this process that it was a way to develop what we call first principles, right? This way that if you could do it enough, because, you know, especially in the way that the Greeks saw it, that if you could, you know, really hone in on a concept to its fundamental core, that these will open up doors to other concepts that are within the concept itself, but are that are sort of the base pairs. Yeah. And that there was this idea that in a way you could almost find... Essences. Yeah, essences. And, and we'll see later, particularly in the medieval period, uh, that they were looking for God this way. Yes. And, um, and I think it's very particular to this sort of uh, lineage of dialectics, um, and which will be an interesting sort of jumping off point as we get to the more contemporary understanding of what dialectics is and what it can do. Um, so, uh, that's kind of the, the basic foundation of, of the sort of Western understanding of dialectics, but it, it's not, it didn't uh, form there solitarily, right? Yeah. Um, so we see this um, preceding Greek thought in both China as well as India in forms that, again, as you mentioned, you know, as we know, Aristotle was the first person to really use the term dialectic. Um, so they weren't using this term, but in our understanding of dialectics, it's exactly what they were doing. Yeah. Right. So we would be amiss uh, and idiots if we were to talk about dialectics and not mention the uh, legacies of China and ancient India um, as they really came to these dialectical topics far earlier than the Greeks did. Yeah. Um, I mean, you see this as far back as uh, 1000 BC. Um, in um, what I think we're all familiar with, the I Ching. So the I Ching is a book of divinations that um, ancient Chinese society used. And the reason I bring it up, um, it's been characterized by a modern-day scholar, um, this individual L.W. Shang, as a quote-unquote naive dialectic. And I think that uh, affirmation really holds true. Um, so... Obviously, the I Ching, like I said, it was this book of divination. You would throw sticks or, through other methods, be able to make decisions about what you should do on the future. Um, but for a second, I want to just uh, linger on the actual name of the book. So I Ching, in its uh, traditional translation, is called Book of Changes. Um, sometimes it's called the Classic of Changes. It was identified as the first classic text uh, in China, um, in ancient, ancient China. Um, but the I in I Ching, uh, as far as I understand this from the material I've read, uh, its meaning isn't just changes, um, but it actually means this sort of uh, three-headed hydra, that it's, it, it has a meaning of simple, it has a meaning of changing, but it also has a meaning of constant. And so basically what you have is this book to help people you know, live their lives, that is embracing the fact that your life is constantly changing, yet is constantly the same thing, right? We all go through our lives constantly as the same human that we are, the same individual, the same subject, yet we're constantly changing. Yeah. 
This is flux. Exactly. And so very early on from like the dawns of, of written history, really, um, we're presented with this idea of the dialectic, that this idea of a, uh, a concept that is sort of contradicting in itself, right? Yeah, that, that even, even life or that experience is constantly facing these contradictions that must be lived through. You know, and so around 600 uh, BC, you have the birth of the yin yang or the yijing, right? And so the yijing, it, it yin and yang is can mean originally meant um, like uh, like sunrise and or, or sun sunshine and lack of sunshine, um, but the it presence and lack of, right? Yeah. Yes, and then which it I came, love that yeah. it came to. Uh, mean absence or presence and absence, uh, male and female. And there's this famous story that uh, comes from this tradition in which... I love there, this story. The horror story is so good. <laughs> there is an old man, right? And the old man, he has a horse and then he loses his horse. So that is a negative thing, right? Definitely bad when you lose your horse. Yes, but the horse comes back with another horse. Win, win. So he, <laughs> he he has a son ride the horse, and the son gets injured. Negative. Definitely a bad thing. Right. But then they come recruiting for the war, and his son is injured and doesn't have to go to war. So this became a proverb, and I think it it defines how the yin yang, which preceded preceded Confucianism and preceded Taoism, which were the uh, orthodox and heterodox spiritual centers of uh, China um, through this period. Um, and uh, it, it shows that, that there was this idea of, you know, like the yin and yang. The son would be the yin to the daughter, who was yang, but the father would be yin to the son, who was yang, right? That, there were, that everything contained within it, a yin and a yang, an internal contradiction, which defined its relationship with external objects, with external ideas. Which so beautifully explains the duality of life, right? That, that, you know, that life actually cannot exist without these sides. If you, like, somehow eliminate one side, it, it ceases to be this, this living, this being, right? Um, and it so fundamentally explains it so simply, yeah. you know, which is why it's, I think, such a great concept to have with us uh, as we go through this journey on dialectics, because it, I mean, everyone can see, we're all seeing the symbol right now, you know, it's like, I almost, we almost don't even need to explain yeah. it, it's so simple. Um, and this, you see this as well in the Tao, so uh, Lao Tzu um, is sort of, uh, you know, the one who they think wrote the Tao Te Ching, which is, uh, this, I mean, in some ways it's a, it's a religion, but it's not the, not a religion in the sense that we conceive of religion in the West, where it's like there's a God and, you know, and he has these rules, yeah. um, but rather, you know, this sort of life force, the Tao, is this very elusive concept, it's very slippery, and, you know, as soon as you've figured out what it is, it's changed by you figuring it out and becomes again something unholdable, unobtainable. And in the book, 
um, it's written that tau gave birth to one, one gave birth to two, three gave birth to, or two gave birth to three, and three gave birth to all myriad things. And um, it's interesting because this is not found in the original versions of this text, but then found later in the sort of Confucius times. Um, but you're, you're starting to see the same kind of yin and yang concept where um, a scholar of the Tao Te Ching, writing later in about like 1050 AD, um, sort of equates these concepts or elucidates on these concepts where one is qi, spirit, uh, two is the yin yang, and three is the synthesis, or he calls it an enriched one. And that, so already we've got this concept that, you know, probably is familiar to you if you're watching a fucking movie on dialectics yeah. of the idea of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, that there is um, a sort of inherent antagonism into discovering truths, into growth, into becoming, right? Yeah. Um, that I think is, is, is really vital and a, and a thread that happens very early on in Chinese history and Chinese thought. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I found numerous descriptions of how yin and yang functioned in Taoism. Like, for instance, the yin and yang symbolizes all paired existence, the complementary poles of nature, but the two are not to be taken as substances or entities, which which divides it from our Western tradition. Right. But as they're not quality, binary, it's, yeah, right? It's a binary. dichotomy. Yeah. They're qualities inherent in all things. Between them, there is perpetual and reciprocal action and reaction, interdependence and mutation, a fusion of so-called opposites. So you see that they were in this kind of naturalistic, spiritualistic. Uh, form of thought um, by avoiding this kind of secular division between, you know, the life without God and life with God and having it all intertwined, there, there was a, a, an idea of like this kind of manifold of individuals mm. forming the mm. whole, right? Yeah. And while that, you know, speaks to Spinoza, who was also a great influence on the dialecticians, uh, so many of the idealists. Um, it, it speaks directly to the way that dialectics was developed, you know, thousand plus years afterward. Yeah, and I think you see this embrace of, of contradiction in um, a lot of Indian thought, too. Um, we see it first with Hinduism, but then we'll also see it in Buddhism as well. But there is this kind of spiritual acceptance of the kind of duality of life yeah. and, and that it, it, it has these antinomies that, are, that cannot be separated out of it, right? Absolutely. Um, like in, in the Bhagavad Gita, right, um, it is said that it explores po uh, polarities of good and evil, of creation and destruction, of... Uh, locating in good and bad, like the concept of good and bad, uh, a source of illusion. And it includes a uh, central dialogue, and, and this is between the Krishna and a character named Arjuna, or Arjuna, Arjuna, I'm not sure. I don't I'm sure yeah. But the central point of this dialogue is that Arjuna is stuck in thinking either or distinctions rather than both and distinctions, 
right? And so we can make a simple like um, description, contextual description here, right? In Western thought, it would be the identity of the cup is A and the identity of the table is B, right? But with this both and, it would be that the cup is both itself and it is the cup that sits on the table, right? It is being held up by the table. The table is both itself and it is that which holds up the cup, mm -hmm. right? There's this reciprocal relationship, right? And um, it, later in the Vi uh, Vaisanika Sutra, um, it is said that they held that both the phenomenal and the supersensual world exist objectively, but that the latter one could only be considered from a dualist position, the former from a materialist. So the phenomenal is material, the supersensual is um, is is something that is you know outside of that materialist uh, understanding, and that this led to their own distinct theory of atoms and of dynamic change. And so you see within this kind of theorizing something similar to what Kant did. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, to, to the nominal. And I think you will see that as well in some of Buddhist thought. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's exactly what I was thinking, you know, because what you're explaining really is this, what we have just recently talked about with Kant, with phenomena and noumena, that there is a phenomenal world that we experience, um, but there's also this noumena world that um, we don't really quite have access to. We can't really know about it. And in a similar way, um, in, in the Buddhist school called the Middle Way, um, which was founded by an individual named Nagarjuna uh, in the second century AD, and I've heard that he's also been referred to as the, the second Buddha. He's like a very important figure in Buddhism. And you can see that in a lot of his thoughts. Um, Specifically, he had one called the Two Truth Doctrine, yeah. which um, basically explicated that um, there's a conventional truth. You know, there's the conventional truth that we have. Um, for instance, a, an example that he uses is that, you know, uh, what we call a chariot is actually just a bunch of parts that make up the chariot. And so really, the chariot is nothing, right? There is no chariot. Yeah. Um, but conventionally, there's a chariot. We, we, if you say chariot, I say chariot. I can see it. Um, but then there's conventional truth versus how things actually are. And that, uh, specifically for him, this uh, was part of, of his process in, um, you know, that, that the only way that you could achieve the highest sense of nirvana, that you could gain enlightenment, is understanding that there were these two kinds of truths. And... Um, that the profound point in the teaching of Buddha is that there is this sort of uh, unobtainable realm that yeah. we're that we're working through. That you know, and and I think in a lot of ways, um, some of Hinduism does this as well as well, where um, it really takes the dialectic and embraces the materiality of it. That it it comes about being about your lived life. So um, the middle way in which he was the leader of that school, um, you know, is kind of known for its like dialectical approach to Buddhism, to enlightenment, which is it's not extreme asceticism like uh, 
Mahatma Gandhi tried originally. You know, he was this king, and he, he realizes that, you know, all this material wealth wasn't good for his spirit, and so he lives off of whatever food people give him. He's always praying and, and you know, living this extreme ascetic life. And so it's not a path to enlightenment that embraces that, but it also eschews sort of, um, you know, uh, overwrought sensualness. Yeah. You know, it's not, you know, you, you're still not going to embrace... The kind of hedonism. Exactly, exactly. And so even, even in, in his, like, f- most fundamental thoughts on Buddhism itself is this sort of dichotomous, this dialectical way of approaching how to live your life. Yeah, and, I, and, and similarly to that, the last thing I can say that I learned in, in our research about Hindu dialectics was that they thought of the syllogism in a completely distinct way from the way that we do in the Western tradition. That it wasn't a difference between uh, two opposing propositions, but rather it was a difference between two meaningful propositions uh, uh, that could be complex, right? So it, it formed a, a means of solving, you know, day-to-day problems between, say, two claimants right. over property or, or over, over a wrongdoing, right? And, and extends in ways past the dialectical thinking that Aristotle did. It, it wasn't so formally complex, but it was complex in that it embraced lived life. And I think that we see this through, throughout. Um, and further on, uh, when we uh, talk about uh, Muslim dialectics, again, I see a similarity in the way that they interpreted dialectics um, to have this juridical function that would aid people in life and in, in decision-making that was different than just this purely philosophical goal of surmising truth. Absolutely. Um, well, I guess that brings us to um, kind of the more Muslim-Christian um, foundations of all this. So do we want to take that up now? Yeah, let's, let's do it. All right. Um, so, in this next segment, um, we're approaching, um, now the Muslim world is going to take up kind of the idea of dialectics and really do most of the philosophical lifting uh, in this period of time. And so we're looking at, you know, kind of fall of Rome up until uh, the Renaissance is kind of the time period we're talking. Um, and I thought uh, maybe a handy way to start We've had this long discussion about dialectics, and like I said before, sorry, you're not going to get a neat description of it. But at this time, what people understood of when they heard the term dialectics, um, I'll give you a quick definition from Diet, excuse me, Diogenes Laertius, who he was basically like a biographer for the philosophers. Yes. Um, and so in his book, Lives of Eminent Philosophers, he describes dialectic as such. Dialectic is the art of discourse by which we either refute or establish some propositions by means of question and answer on the part of the interlocutors. So we're, we still have a very basic definition. And the only reason I bring this up is we had, I think, some really interesting points and facets brought in from uh, Chinese and Indian thinkers and Buddhist thinkers. Um, 
that won't wholly apply to us yet. No. In this in this uh, moment of history, because um, they're still looking at much as as a dialogue. Yeah, right? and and I would say what what is really fascinating and what is counterintuitive, maybe not to us, but maybe to some people out there who have a particular perspective of the Muslim world, um, in, in so far that it's so different from the Western world. But at this time, uh, which would be roughly um, slightly before and occurring beside the uh, medieval age right. of, uh, of Europe, um, the religious uh, spirit and the philosophical spirits were very similar, right? And so the first translations of Aristotle um, were in um, Persia. Mm -hmm. um, so it was uh, Caliph al-Mahdi in 70, 782 CE who ordered a translation of Aristotle's uh, book, Topics, right? And the purpose of doing this was for apologetics. It was so that um, Muslim scholars could uh, argue vigorously against heterodox opinions in society. So in that regard, it somewhat uh, moves away from the original function of the, uh, of the dialectic. It, certainly it is trying to attain truth, but this truth is predominantly a religious truth, right? Um, but also developed a, a juridical sense, that is, a, a sense of how the dialectic could be used in law, right? And um, what they called the dialectic was uh, the jadal, right? And uh, so what would happen is uh, they set up their own specific rules for how the dialectic should be done. And it included the that you would have one claimant and another arrive to you, and that you would, instead of going over, say, all of the distinct rules of rhetoric and of language that Aristotle had, you would instead measure the evidence. Is the, is the evidence of the thesis meaningful? Is the evidence of the counterclaim meaningful? And so on. And through that, they would try to reach a practical truth that could be applied in law. So you have the dialectics used in one sense, where it is to sustain the belief in Allah, but at the same time, you had a functional use, which was how can we solve problems of law? And these were also solved in a religious sense, but at the same time, it was for people, as and, and we I, saw in Asia. Right, and I think this elucidates the like uh, practical potential of the dialectic, right? So, um, you know, even comparative to like say our law system, where it's like you know innocent till proven guilty. We're you know we're trying to in a similar way measure out the evidence of the claim versus the evidence of the refutation, and then make a judgment. Um, you know what you're describing is this ability to you know, have many answers. So perhaps the uh, claimant has some good points, but um, the, uh, you know, 
defendant also have some good points. You know, that there is, you know, to borrow a phrase from our last segment, a middle way as far as, you know, it's as opposed to our binaristic system where there's a winner and a loser, that there can be these outcomes which subsume both arguments to actually create a, a circumstance that more effectively translates the actual material conditions of these people's experience or, you know, in whatever way you, you execute this system, right? Yes, absolutely. And then historically, um, what, what is even more fascinating, I think, than the details of how the Muslim dialectic was used, because it was Aristotelian, was how the dialectic got to Christian society. Because, you know, famously, it, both is maybe earlier than, no, uh, than um, uh, the Yeah, he was translating was around about, 400 AD yeah, or something like, a, like that. 400, 600, something like that. Yeah. But, but, however, that translation did not, was not regularly um, accessible. And it was incomplete, I feel, and, as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was in Toledo, Spain, you had a center for the translation from Arabic into Latin. And so many texts, for like uh, the text um, De Anima, mm-hmm. um, a, a famous Islamic text, was translated into, uh, into Latin. And in it, it has secondhand accounts of Aristotle's topics and writings on the dialectic. And so for much of uh, the history between 600 and 1200, most of these monastic schools that are popping up around Europe are getting Aristotle secondhand through translations of Muslim texts, you know, and, and it shows a transfer of information that is different than the kind of linear uh, line that is drawn from the Greeks mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the Christians and then to the philosophers of the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment. Yeah, and it, I mean, it, it also shows, like, you know, we use this term medieval, but it was truly medieval Europe, you know? I mean, Persia itself was going through kind of a, uh, you know, a second period of of power and wonder, and, and um, you know, we only look at it that way as the Dark Ages because of this Western perspective, that, yeah. that it wasn't inclusive for, like, all parts of the world, for instance, just the, you know, European forebearers of a lot of, like, historiosity, basically. Um, but you're right that, you know, the sort of medieval Europeans were actually gaining access to Aristotle through their uh, Arabic counterparts. And um, in a similar way to their Arabic counterparts were mainly, especially early on, using the dialectic to prove God. Yes. Um, St. Anselm of Canterbury has uh, famously said uh, about his dialectics is that I do not seek to understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. And so they were kind of approaching the dialectics very backward to what we do today, right? Today we try and take um, a concrete concept and imminently describe it in in the hopes that it can reveal something transcendental, right? This kind of Kantian approach that we've been talking about. 
Um, but in medieval Europe, it was far different. You, dialectics was a tool, at least very initially, that was used in order to find out, both to prove God's existence, which was like a foregone conclusion, but also to sort of create something learned about concrete life through the words of God. Yeah, I, I actually think Thomas Aquinas is a perfect example of this. Totally. Like, because Aquinas had his, his method, which um, he is, is very odd, but actually you can see how it affected the Germanic philosophy that happened afterward. Because instead of beginning with just a positive proposition about what he believes, he would begin with three uh, negative judgments that he meant to disprove. So he would, for instance, um, you know, uh, uh, talk about the use of metaphor in scripture, right? And he argues that metaphor is limited to poetry, that metaphor obscures through truth that if metaphor is to be used, it should reference those things that are closest to the divine, like stars, rather than like the human body, right? And then he would go and find a scripture, right, that would show a use of metaphor or a description of the use of metaphor that contradicted these uh, three uh, determinate mm -hmm. questions. And in that part, he would then through a kind of negation of the negation, would affirm his own beliefs, and only after would make these positive arguments about, uh, you know, what he truly believed about God and uh, about about you know what the use of metaphor was in, totally. in religion. Yeah, and and so his uh, Summa Theologiae. Um, it sort of signifies a return of this dialectic. Like, you know, early on in the episode when we were talking about the, the Socratic dialectics, these texts of Plato, he's presenting arguments again in a way that's like that, that is sort of very methodical, that goes point through point, and, you know, is presenting a concept, and then through refutation, finding something that is true. Yes. And, and, and so it's a, like a big move in that sense, because we're sort of returning to a metaphysics that sort of harkens back to both the Greek metaphysics, but also to particularly a lot of, of Indian dialectics, um, uh, both Buddhist and Hindu, where, you know, you're, you're looking at your use of grammar again, and you're sort of making these arguments through the critique of concepts. Yeah. Um, which is very important, obviously, to philosophy in general. Um, and by the time he's writing, um, it depends on who you read, but some says it's like the sort of fall of this like dialectical flourishing yeah, in had, medieval had, Europe. Uh, William of Ockham and you had Duns Scotus, and they really kind of moved against the dialectic. Yeah, and, and but I think also what was happening is you had folks like Peter uh, Abelard um, and these other folks who are using the dialectic to try and talk about scripture and then being condemned. Like Abelard, I believe, was condemned twice and they finally killed him in 1140. Yeah. And so there was this 
movement that I want to bring up because what's starting to happen is this moment where um, this kind of this kind of dialectical uh, process, this uh, method, is getting people in trouble because it's it's bringing up very real critiques about the sort of word of God and these you know this yeah. like Christian worldview. Because even if you bring up a contradiction only to affirm, you know, the opposite, you've brought up the contradiction, and mm-hmm. now there is a question. And that is not going to disappear, you know. And even in Kant's dialectics, that is particularly what he says about transcendental illusion. It's not going to disappear once you solve it, right? The transcendent illusion is it's something that still stays after its solution has been found. I mean, that's a truth you see here, that you cannot dissolve this problem of the contradiction mm-hmm. that was, that, that's driven by Peter Abelard or whomever uh, who, who wrote these, these questions about can God change the past, right, right? right? and then makes an argument against that. No, we cannot change the past. But then... And then he argues, well, this shows no difference or does not limit his powers. But all of a sudden now, someone who reads it can think, well, it does limit it. Right, right. Yeah, we've created a negative limitation for that, right? And, you know, and that's, and then like, I guess this is an easy way to get to Kant because, you know, and then what do we have Kant saying, right? And at Kant, when he starts his critique of pure reason, he, he sets out right away, and, and Kant is a fundamentally religious person. There's probably, you know, not a conscious thing of doubt in him, or at least yeah. that he shared with anybody. Um, but he, he says right away, he says, I, I am setting up this um, system, this epistemological system of metaphysics, um, but I don't think, I think from what I'm learning from this, that I can say nothing about God. Yeah. And so uh, don't ask me about it because I won't say anything about it. I'm not here trying to prove God's existence. God exists. And he gives this little uh, reason later on. But, um, but, but we're coming to this thing because you can only integrate contradictions. Yeah. You can't disintegrate them like you were, you were saying. Yeah. You, know, you cannot dissolve them. And so you carry them with you. And um, so Kant is kind of this transition point in the dialectic, shall yeah. we say. And, and, and for Kant, his dialectic was absolutely new, but as with all new things, there's no way, and this is a very dialectical statement, to take them away from the past, from the concepts that compose these new ideas, right? Because, you know, as we explained in the, when we were talking about the transcendental analytic with Kant, the point is to define kind of the limits and the uh, pure knowledge that can be derived from the empirical point of view and the limits of the empirical point of view and what is total about them. Right. So the dialectic, which he talks about early on in the book, um, is a means of illusion, but also he sees it as a means of dispelling illusion. So he sees two functions for how we can get rid of them. Yeah, and you can hop back to, I think it's uh, our episode two on Kant, um, but, you know, he mentions this quote, and I'll just paraphrase it, but he says, to the ancients, the dialectic was nothing but the logic of illusion. He makes this reference to sophism again, yeah. of, of this 
almost trick to convince people of things that aren't true, um, but does go on to say that he wants to rescue dialectic. Yeah. He sees usefulness in this process um, because it's essentially the process that he's doing to make his uh, epistemology work, right, yeah. is this dialectical process of imminent critique. He's taking things and critiquing what their concepts are to try and either create better concepts or find these pathways that sort of lead us to something higher up the chain um, in our uh, examination of these concepts and these elucidation yeah. of them. And, and that's what's so fascinating about Kant's uh, dialectic is because, you know, you have these, his idea of the transcendent dialectic, which is the dialectic that is reaching out phenomena, but, you know, can't ever get there because they're never really accessible. Mm -hmm. And here he uses transcendent different from transcendental. Um, he uses it in a more conventional sense of the word. But he also has the eminent dialectic, which is the dialectic that solves these transcendental illusions, right? And, you know, he sees these kind of particular problems that we have, right? That we hypostasize uh, concepts, right? Or he, he uses a, a strange word. It's like suppression or sub sub subreption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, these are, are fallacies where one applies a principle of experience to pure reason, and on the other hand, the application of a general principle of pure reason to the empirical and specific, right? And hypostasization is to like sort of hold almost like Marxist reification to hold a concept still, to not be willing to recognize its change. But at the same time, he says, those, those hypothesization can be a positive thing, right. can help us learn, right? right? And so he, he ends with these antinomies, right? These two pairs. And again, if you go back to earlier episodes, he constantly categorizes in the mathematic and the dynamical. So there's two mathematical and two dynamical, right? And they all deal with space and time and our relationship to objects. And interestingly enough, in the mathematical, he is trying to show how these antinomies are wrongheaded, right? But in the dynamical, he's trying to show how they both can be correct, how they both, the idea that, say, uh, in, in the dynamical case, that um, things are mechanistic, but they also have an outside cause, and the antithesis that uh, they are only mechanistic, right? Right. Well, he's trying to say they both have possible truth. That there is both the possibility of free will in addition to a mechanistic uh, causality or just a mechanistic causality. So what, while Kant isn't consistent on his use of dialectics and doesn't completely formalize it as the later uh, idealists and Marx would, he immediately brings up this tension of internal contradiction of the ability of even the illusion to produce positive concepts. And these are things that we will get into far more in depth. Yeah, in the, in the next episode. So hold on for that. But, but this is, I mean, ding, 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 ding. Like, this is the moment you're all waiting for if you watched this. Because um, this is the moment when 
dialectics become something more than just a form of rhetoric and dialogue to to sort of determine truths, um, but become something more. So thanks everyone for watching our first episode on dialectics. We have a lot more to come. Um, we didn't think it would be a good dialectical episode if there wasn't a antithesis to our original thesis that you can synthesize later. So um, this we're cutting this episode into two parts. So keep your eyes peeled uh, for the next week for the next one to drop. Uh, and we'll dig deep into Hegel and Marx and the, uh, you know, the kings of the dialectic, I guess. Yeah, the, the joy of the dialectic. <laughs> Smash that subscribe button. Uh, you can hit our Patreon if you want to support our project. And uh, be well, everybody. Yeah, talk to your plants. <laughs> I like that. <laughs>